Hi, I'm Danielle Fetter. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. Hello, everyone. Alex and I Woo-hoo! are going to give a little bit of a theater recap of things that we saw in Q2 of 2023. So April, May, June. Uh, we talked about some of these shows already Um when discussing the Drama Desk nominations and the Tonys. So we're not going to talk about everything we've seen. And this is going to be kind of rapid fire. But we're going to hit on some highlights and maybe some lowlights. So yeah, let's dive on in. Going all the way back to April. The first show we're going to talk about is actually one that Danielle and I saw together. And it was Endgame by Samuel Beckett, the Irish Repertory Theater production off-Broadway. Which... I mentioned before, like, I came up, I think, briefly when we talked about the drama desks because it was nominated for a few things. And I talked about how I love this play. And I was very excited to see a production of it at Irish Rep specifically because it's like, Beckett's tough. And there are so often productions of Beckett plays where they're just like, oh, wow, we're doing a depressing play. Let's lean into the fact that this is depressing when actually they're comedies. So I was very excited to see uh, Irish Rep get it at a fundamental level. And I'm a huge Irish Rep stan. Like I, last time I lived in New York, I went to Irish Rep a whole bunch. Even when I didn't live in New York and I was here last summer, I went to see Butcher Boy because I just really love the work that they do. And I think they really get, they get good artists and they understand their work. So... I was so on board. Briefly, for those who are not familiar with Endgame, maybe you're familiar with Waiting for Godot, which is sort of the most often taught and most familiar Samuel Beckett play to a lot of people. Endgame is set in a sort of post-apocalyptic scenario where Ham and his servant of some kind, Clove, are in essentially one room. In this production, the set made it two rooms. And it's essentially their apocalypse bunker. And Ham is in a wheelchair, cannot stand. Clove has a limp and something wrong with his legs, but he can't sit. He never sits. So that's some of the Beckett, like, game of the play. And also Ham's parents are there but they don't have legs and live in trash cans. So that's the setting. And there really isn't much of a plot because that is how Beckett operates. The biggest event of the play is that there is a flea in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And so the dramatic action of the play is really, I don't want to say limited because I don't think it's limited at all, but it's very much found in the dialogue and in the interplay between Ham and Clove like for the most part, uh, as well as them reacting to the outside world, which we don't see in this play. Right. We are just kind of getting their reactions. I, I really liked this play, like, or this production. I thought it was a really terrific production. And I think that what Irish Rep did was so smart because they, they programmed this for so soon after COVID and they didn't make it a COVID production. But you could also really tangibly feel that like people were just getting it and they were getting the material and they were getting 
kind of the setting of being stuck in a post-apocalyptic world in a room in your two rooms that that was very much on everyone's mind and so I thought that that was incredibly smart it really reframed the entire play for me in a way that like I kind of wonder if I'm ever going to be able to think about this play in the same way again yeah totally I agree should we move on yeah if, yeah if you don't have anything else oh, to I think really you I think about. you said it well okay <laughs> next for something that is more of a low light I would say uh Bad Cinderella mm. so Bad Cinderella <laughs> Alex did you see it I don't remember yeah I did so did I so the premise of Bad Cinderella, yes, the premise of Bad Cinderella is so it's very similar to the uh, classic fairy tale story that we all know and love. Uh, in this one, everyone is living in the town of Belleville. And in Belleville, everybody is beautiful and beauty is put at a really high standard. And that's what everyone truly values in each other. And that's kind of where I lost the plot after that introduction because bad Cinderella is supposed to be bad and she's causing trouble in the town and everyone doesn't like her because she doesn't wear pastels. And like also she like vandalized a statue, but it's like, okay. I don't. And also like her, her flouting of the beauty standards of Belleville amounts to her essentially dressing like she is in an early 2000s indie film. Um. <laughs> but she doesn't look bad, no. which is what's funny. So here's here's my criticism is that I think that the show lost a lot when it transferred from the West End, where it also reportedly had a lot of problems on stage and backstage. On the West End, the role of Cinderella was played by Carrie Hope Fletcher. I think that this conceit and the essential conflict of Cinderella in the town made a lot more sense on the West End because Carrie Hope Fletcher, I don't think she, I don't think she is what's like widely considered a plus size actress, but she is larger and she is curvy and it's actually something that she has addressed publicly. And when they transferred to Broadway, they cast someone who has a little bit more of a quote unquote Broadway body. Mm -hmm. And so it just didn't make, I think it made more sense when Cinderella was physically distinct from the other people in Belleville. Yes, that's fair. I will also say that I I have a playlist of all the music from this past Broadway season that I've been listening to. So I've been listening to the cast recording from London. And I also think that the, like, the graffiti that goes on the statue at the beginning of the show in the US, I think it just said like, Belleville sucks down with Belleville. I'm pretty sure it was a dick on the West End. And like, I don't know. That's a bigger statement. That like, at least physically is more jarring. I don't know. They made a lot of changes. And I honestly wonder if I would have enjoyed this more if I'd seen it on the West End. I was also talking with one of my friends who said, you know, there's been a lot of conversation around how Lenady Janeo is the first Latinx lead in an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical on Broadway, or at least to originate one. And one of my friends who is, her father is Argentinian, and she has a lot of feelings surrounding, like, seeing herself on stage and how that's represented. She said, you know, it was really, really distracting for me for them to have a Latina 
Cinderella that everybody hated and then to become more like everyone else she essentially whitens her hair yep and does things that make her like less Latina so that is something that I think is a really that's a valid concern that has been circulating that I did want to point out there um that maybe wasn't taken into consideration when they you know looked at this show as a whole which I firmly believe that they didn't no 100% not I think the downfall of this show for me was tension I felt between perhaps Andrew Lloyd Webber and the director Lawrence Connor and then Alexis Shear and perhaps the cast on Broadway to an extent where some people Alexis the cast perhaps some others involved in the production identified the show as camp but Andrew Lloyd Webber and the director Lawrence Connor firmly believe this show is serious and high-minded and that they're really making an important point. The scenes for me that worked in the show were when Grace McLean and Carly Carmelo were able to just like lean into the camp and the comedy of it mm-hmm. and not take it seriously. And then some also chorus numbers where the ensemble got to just sort of like genuinely let loose and be ridiculous and campy. Those are the moments that worked. It doesn't work when it's taking itself super seriously and like the material in no way supports that tone. Yeah, um, I will say the one thing I liked about it as an adaptation, like the one thing I thought was actually very good that I wanted to see more of was the relationship between the evil stepmother and the queen. I actually thought that was really interesting that they had a backstory. And like you said, Carol Lee Carmelo, Grace McLean, queens. They just, they are, they're so good. Mm -hmm. Grace McLean was the highlight of the entire show for me. Speaking of it as an adaptation, that's also another thing that like threw me Mm -hmm. with this show is, I mean, I agree with you that I love that addition Mm -hmm. of giving the stepmother and the queen sort of like reason to interact and a backstory, but. It didn't save the show. (laughs) Oh, it certainly didn't save the show. (laughs) I forgot what I was saying. No, 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 no. I know that. I could never quite tell, and I don't think the show knows either. I don't think Andrew Lloyd Webber knows. I don't think anyone actually has an answer to this. Were they or were they not actually adapting Rodgers and Hammerstein and Cinderella? Because in Act One, you could literally like map the beats of like, this is 10 minutes ago. This is in my own little corner. And in fact, the like melody of bad cinderella the musical motif of the lyric for bad cinderella is pretty much exactly in my own little corner obviously on purpose but then then it just like abandons that Mm -hmm. entirely yeah and not in a way that seems deliberate that seems like it's saying and here is where we deviate and here is where we take this story in a new direction there was like no intentionality behind any of it yeah bad Cinderella I think that schools are gonna have a riot of a time with it once it's licensed I think it's gonna live on I think it's gonna live on it has it has some solid female roles which is what a lot of high schools look for so it certainly won't be uh licensed 
the version of it that is licensed will not involve the graffiti being a dick. I no. I can probably promise probably that. Probably not. <laughs> and maybe some of the lines about the hot buns will be omitted. There's a little bit of innuendo going on. Yeah. And, you know, like the queen wants to fuck her son. Yeah, that's There's multiple weird. songs about it. But um, I, I think it will be coming to a high school auditorium near you. So, you know, if you want to see... Honestly, like a future potential like Jimmy Award winner. Check out the high school near you. Anyway. Moving on to our friend Julia Izumi's play, Regretfully So the Birds Are, at Playwrights Horizons, directed by Jenny Coons. Yay! Yay, Julia! Hey, Julia. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I was so thrilled to finally get a chance to see one of Julia's plays, and I'm so happy that, like, this one was my first time actually seeing Same. something of hers on stage. Set the scene. There are three siblings, and they're all adopted from countries in Asia to white American parents who have not told them where they're from, so they don't know what country any of them are from. I think it's kind of assumed that like they might like they all are from different countries, but they really don't know. And so one of them, Mora, breaks their little pact that they made about finding their birth families together one day, and she decides to set out on her own solo journey to find her birth family or at least her birth mother. And it's about sort of a lot of Family secrets are uncovered, both about their adoptions and about their father who has passed away. But the, um, the play is done in a very, like, magical realism fashion. Yes. Um, it's not, it's definitely not a straightforward family drama. And in a lot of ways, it's a parody of a family drama, which I think Julia hit on, like, A++. 100%. And, like, it was so funny and kooky. And, I mean, all you have to know as far as, like, how kooky it is, is that the mom is played by Christine Nielsen. So, like, that gives you a sense of the type of comedy. Like, how perfect. Like, I cannot... I am just, like, in awe that Julia Zumi had Christine Nielsen do her play. Like, I love that so much for everyone. And truthfully, <laughs> I have to say, like, the entire cast was, like, amazing across the board. Oh, they're all amazing. Like, I can't, I can't pick, I can't pick like, one person who was a standout for me, honestly. It's, it's a very specific, it sounds like a very specific kind of story, you know, talking about adopted families and like Asian American identity and Asian identity and it also deals with elements of kind of like class and the idea that we're all going to be ruled by our like techno overlords like Elon Musk. It deals with a lot but it felt overwhelmingly personal to me. I was so invested. I just enjoyed every single beat of it even and there are like weird little twists you don't see coming that are just beautifully like melded in there and I really hope that it has a life outside Playwrights Horizons I think that there are some regional theaters that need to jump on doing this play because it's beautiful and also shout out to the puppetry oh my god yes and shout out to the character of the dead father who appears as a sentient snowman. 
Oh, yeah. I really loved that. I loved it. So, snaps for Julia Azumi. Yes. A plus, A plus, A plus. We love you, Julia. And snaps to Playwright Horizons for programming her. And we can't wait to see her next play. Moving on to May, there's only one thing. And it is Oliver at New York City Center Encores, directed by Lear de Bessonet. Love Lear. Love her. Uh, don't love Oliver. Weird, not great show. So, I had never seen Oliver before. I went in expecting a lot more. And I was so mad. This was like some of the longest, one of the longest theatrical experiences of my life. I actually texted Danielle after seeing it and I was like, has the book to Oliver always been this bad? It was so distractingly terrible. It was so, I can't get over how much I hated this show. I really can't. I did not feel that strongly about it. I think partly just because I know, I knew going in that it's just like not a good show, that a lot of the score is pleasant enough. Uh, I was really there to see Raul Esparza, like end of list. And he delivered mm-hmm. like, holy shit. I love him so much. He was terrific. What an incredible, he was an incredible Fagan and like also an unusual Fagan. Like, his understudy, Gavin Lee, is like the more sort of typical Fagin you would imagine. And he did actually go on twice, which is two or three times, which is super unusual for an Encores production. But um, the people who saw Gavin Lee were like, well, now like, like he was so perfect, I can't even imagine. Mm. Like, I would never even want to consider Raul because Gavin Lee was so perfect. And everyone who saw Raul was like, I'm sure Gavin Lee was perfect because like that's so the typical Fagin you would picture. Raul was so brilliant and so funny and so, like, smarmy. It was great. And the kids in it were amazing. Yes, the kids were fantastic. I loved that they also had that chorus of local kids for Consider Yourself integrated. So wonderful. Mm -hmm. So Lear. Just to back up, Oliver is the musical adaptation of Charles Dickens' uh, novel Oliver Twist which is about an orphan boy in late 19th century London, Industrial Revolution era, and its trials and tribulations while he tries to survive and maybe one day find a family who will love him. Now, Oliver the Musical features Oliver the Boy for like maybe a third of it, which is fine. Like I can, I can get behind, like I know that like Shows like The Secret Garden and Annie, you need to give those kids time off stage and give plot lines to other people. That's not one of my criticisms of the book. Um, I just thought that the book was mundane. Like, I was so bored. And in the end, yeah, it's not great that Nancy is given such a terrible ending. But then also, I was confused because the police officer shoots What's-His-Face? Who's the other guy? The guy who was beating Nancy? Oh, Bill Sykes. Bill Sykes. The police officer shoots Bill Sykes in the altercation and he dies. And the audience around me erupted. And I was like, did all of the conversations about police violence over the past few years not happen? That we're all really happy about this, right? I felt very conflicted about the entire depiction of that. 
That's interesting. I think it was really just that, like, people cheering for, like, the villain getting his comeuppance. Which, like, I, can, like, I get, but, like, it still made me feel really weird that that was how it was resolved and that everybody was just, like, on board with it. Um, so, I don't know if this show was not for me, let's just put it that way. Lily Cooper was also, I think, an, a really great Nancy, like a wonderful Nancy. Yes. And it was also like the way that Lear directed it and positioned Nancy and gave Nancy more agency um, where she could. And the characterization of Nancy was more like dominant, I guess, than maybe in other productions. Well, and it was a special, it was a, it was rewritten for this concert too, a little bit. Right. I just love Lear de Bessonet. Yeah. There were, there were plenty of things about this that I enjoyed. Um, and maybe that was just by virtue of the fact that like, I was aware of all the things that are shitty about it going in. Yeah. Yeah. For somebody who like me, who didn't know, I was completely unaware and I was so disappointed. Um, I also, I will say shout out because the night that I saw it had been after Raul Esparza being out, which caused a bit of a stir. Um, but the night that I went, the, the night that I saw it, six swings went on, which is kind of unreal in an encore wow. production. So a lot of them were on like with some scripts and like, you wouldn't have known. You honestly wouldn't have known, but Lear did make an announcement before the production to just like let us know that this was happening and there was also kind of a lot of chaos in the box office line uh when we got there and Mm -hmm. i kind of wonder if they weren't sure if they were going to be able to go on with the show but like oh my god they did and they pulled it off so like kudos to the cast for that not my favorite show but you were phenomenal that's kind of where i land on oliver i don't plan to go again but uh (laughs) ever (laughs) I, I'm I'm good now that I know. <laughs> um, cool. Now, do we want to do a, a really hard left turn into from something that you absolutely hated to something that is your favorite thing? It's of the season? literally Alex? my favorite thing on Broadway. And Juliet is a Max Martin song jukebox musical about Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway rewriting the end of Romeo and Juliet. And Max Martin has produced or written or co-written so many pop songs that you know, you know, from the last like 20, 25 years, probably longer. I don't know how old I am and how time works, but um, (laughs) it's, I think that jukebox musicals have gotten such a bad rap and I do think a lot of them are cheesy, but this one is so fucking smart and as somebody who just like has had a lot of Shakespeare experience I Shakespeareans or Shakespeareans I went in expecting to be entertained I didn't expect to be laughing and crying at the same time I like I've seen the show twice now and I've cried in the second act like for at least 10 minutes both times I just think that the cast is phenomenal. The Shakespeare references are all on point. I think that it, it it moves really well. The pop songs are integrated in so well. They make so much sense dramatically and dramaturgically. And when they know that they're forcing 
it to make dramatic sense. There's a self-awareness to it and a humor to it where like they aren't being dead serious about like this was the perfect song for this moment and like you're not even gonna notice that this is a song that you know like this is just fits so naturally like they no. don't play that game like some jukebox musicals do they're like this is ridiculous like we are having Paolo shot sing teenage so dream by Katy perry and like it's ridiculous mm-hmm. and we know um, and we're i will in. say i have one quibble about it as a shakespeare person my one quibble about this show is that they do so well with talking about Shakespearean history and like what we know and don't know about Shakespeare, except for when they keep the idea that giving Anne the second best bed was an insult. And they kind of stick with that and they run with that in a really dramatic moment. And there's actually a lot of scholarly evidence to support the fact that that was actually like an act of love and devotion and that it actually had a lot of special meaning in that time period um, to be giving someone the second best bed. I won't go all the way into why because this is not a Shakespeare podcast, but you can always tweet at me if you want to know more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Angeliette, my favorite thing on Broadway. I will go see it again and again. Yeah, I have no quib. That was my one quibble. I- Honestly, I think this is a perfect night out of the theater. I don't. I don't know that I can like top what you just said. Um, the only thing I will add is that I think Andrew Juliet's number one selling point to millennials, anyway, is that it is the first and only time in human history that the lyrics to "I Want It That Way" by the Backstreet Boys have made sense. Also, also a high point. All right, let's move on. The next play we're going to talk about, we actually this month have released an episode that's going to touch a lot on this play. So I think we're going to, I think we're just going to do kind of brief mention of it. Uh, And that's Grey House on Broadway. A new play, a new horror play about a couple whose car crash in the woods and they seek refuge in a house inhabited by an older woman and several children. There's a lot of mysteries, a lot of spookiness, a lot of scariness. And yeah, just to kind of recap, I really enjoyed it. I thought that it tried to do a lot and I don't know it always achieved what it was trying to do, but I love that ambition. And I love that we're seeing it on Broadway. I very much agree with that. And that they didn't wait until October to try and be like, oh, like we should try and capitalize on the spookiness. Like, no, you can go see a horror play in July. Who's who's saying you can't? Oh, yeah. It wasn't like it's not gimmicky in that way. I am not a horror fan, generally speaking. I have seen like a fair number of horror movies, but I'm just not like I don't seek it out. And I also really enjoyed Grey House. For me, I think what was lacking was the story underpinning the whole thing. But at the same time, I understand that the style of like horror thriller that this play was, is, is a style that doesn't really rely on the plot as much as it relies on like certain genre tropes and vibes. (laughs) And like... But for me, just like as someone who doesn't love horror, I personally don't find it super satisfying when the whole thing is vibes. Like, 
I need something like Get Out to like with a really, really strong story anchoring me through to like justify to myself being scared. There are people who like love horror because they love Mm -hmm. the sensation and the experience of like being scared in, you know, a safe way for the sake of it. I don't enjoy that. Like I need there to be like more to it for me to be like, great. Like it was worth being scared for two hours, but like at the same time for gray house, like, there was absolutely like just enough of a story and enough mystery carrying you through just enough of your questions are answered along the way to keep you engaged until the end when things really tie together in a more in a a more clear and like a more satisfying way than they have up until that point like I've really enjoyed like I'm still thinking about it like I still really enjoy like you know, once the sort of, like, ending revelation happens, I've been thinking, like, oh, that's what that scene was, you know? Like, I'm still going back and having those, um, having those moments. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, I want to read it, because I think that the dramatic construction of it is fascinating, and I, I'm not really a horror fan, I would say, but I, I do enjoy it. And I do, I kind of like the possibilities that arise from horror, from, from the horror genre. So I was really into seeing this play and kind of dissecting that. I think my favorite part of it, I guess we're going to do spoilers for Grey House, but my favorite part of Grey House was the fact that at the very beginning, like you are in a lot of horror films, and in a lot of horror books, honestly, too, you're kind of creeped out by all these kids on stage. You're creeped out by, like, how you oh, don't yeah. know a lot about them. Sophia and Caruso was incredible. Yeah. But the show, over the course of, like, two hours, subverts that to where you're not so scared of the kids. You're not supposed to be scared of these little girls. Um, they're not the creepiest thing about this house and about this play. What happened to them? is so much scarier and so much worse and you realize how wrong you are and how you're actually afraid for them instead of being afraid of them and like oh I loved I loved that aspect of it I really it blew my mind I also thought Tatiana Maslany was really good I thought the whole cast was excellent yeah and you're right I hadn't thought about that in terms of like the the use of like children in horror um and of course, like everyone playing the girls in Grey House, like I think they're all legal adults, except I mean, there's the little, little boy. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But I think he's the only like actual child, but they're all playing children. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way. And that's really interesting. Um, And the one other thing that I will say, I don't know if you took a good look at the, um, I like the understudy list. But there are some of the some of the children characters in Grey House can be played by hearing or deaf actors. And I am so, I just, A plus, like, go Grey mm-hmm. House, go producing team for somehow making that happen, go pr- creative team for somehow making that happen. That is not an easy feat. And I want to see how it's done. One of the characters, like, is canonically in the script, deaf, and is played by a deaf actor. But it's, that's really interesting if deaf actors understudy the hearing roles. I'm pretty sure that the Sophia Ann Caruso character is understudied by 
the girl who plays the deaf character regularly. Millicent something? Yeah. Um, anyway, I think that that is an incredible step in the right direction of inclusion on Broadway that like hopefully we can I want to know more about this and I want to know how we can see more of that going forward yeah anyway yeah so like great house I had a great time would see again yeah I don't I don't know that I would see it again and I don't know that I would describe my my experience at the play as a great time but I'm glad I saw it it's very much a personal preference thing and a personal um aversion to horror anyway moving on to once again another hard left turn just for us by alex edelman on broadway directed by the late adam brace um who unfortunately passed away he was supposed to be making his broadway debut with the show and he passed away like right before like during rehearsals so very tragic but the show itself I mean, it was it ran off Broadway for quite a while. It's played um, in other cities, but it is so good. And Alex and I had an incredible experience there as uh, a Jew and a wasp. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing the show together. It's a a one man comedic show. It's kind of set up to be a little like pretty stand up. Um, And it's centered around Alex's experience of being a Jewish man go who like goes to a Nazi rally kind of for funsies not a rally like just like a meeting in someone's apartment yeah and then he kind of uses that as the anchor and expands on themes of Jewish identity and whiteness in America and how it's conditional and it was I think I said this but I, I was laughing so hard that I cried. Like, that was the high point for me. It was so fun. I mean, so much of it also felt very, like, you know, they were very sort of niche references to, like, Jewish experiences of, of people who grew up Jewish, like, specifically in the Northeast. Because uh, Alex Edelman grew up in uh, outside Boston. And it... I just had, like, such a fucking great time. And, like, not to harp on, you know, a play or something being, like, important and relevant, but I gotta point out that the other shows this season that were deemed, like, important, relevant Jewish shows are Parade and Leopoldstadt, which are both about... Jews being murdered and dying in the past and not about like a present day experience of a living Jewish person. And that's an important distinction to me. Yeah, it's a limited run. But oh my gosh, if you're in the New York area, or if it's coming to a city near you, like, go see it, you won't regret it. Um, The only reason it's a limited run is because Marilee's coming in the fall. Which I'm so excited about. I hope we're still talking about this show when it comes time for awards season next year because it was really phenomenal. And I have only been to like one comedy show in my life. And so now I'm like, oh, do I like comedy? Do I like like stand up? So thank you, Alex Edelman, for changing my view on stand up comedy. And finally, the last thing that we saw, that we both saw recently most recently, The Light in the Piazza, another New York City Center on course production, this time directed by Che Yu, 
Um, this is the first major New York revival. And I would call it a revival, even though on-course productions are supposedly staged readings. They're just full productions at this point. They're just full productions at this point. So it's the first... Oliver was too. <laughs> Oliver was too. Dear World, Donna Murphy came out with her with her script for part of Act 2, but, like, no one says boo. Like... No, there's sets, there's costumes. Like, it's a production. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, anyway, it is... The first major New York production since the original of Adam Gettle's musical about a mother and a daughter vacationing in Italy in the, is it the 1950s? I think it's the 50s, I believe so. Yeah. And their entanglement with an Italian family while they're there. It is an adaptation of an old novella. Mm -hmm. And many, one of its many criticisms of the show essentially criticisms of the source material and like arguments that maybe this wasn't source material that um warranted an adaptation yeah and i see that because the whole plot essentially hinges on the fact that clara who's the daughter was kicked in the head by a horse at a bir- I think like her 10th or 12th birthday party. Mm-hmm. And so she suffered a traumatic brain injury and is now disabled in a vague, ill-defined way. And it's, you know, not the most sensitive or accurate portrayal of that experience because it's based on a novella from the 1950s where all they say is Clara is special. And that's how they define the disability. <laughs> yeah. I will say that this show came out when I was like middle school, high school, and I fell in love with the score. I listened to this cast recording all of the time, but I this was my first time actually seeing it besides when it aired on PBS with, I think, most of the original cast. It wasn't the original cast. It was um, Katie Rose Clark, not Kelly O'Hara. Yes. Yes. I thought that this production was absolutely stunning in so many ways and just like the like also with this production they sort of reframed it a bit by casting an asian american duo as the mother and daughter ruthie ann miles and anna zavelson oh my god both both of whom are exquisite like and i also have to say like as much as i just sort of like summarized criticism of the story the score is one of the most gorgeous musical like pieces i'm i like can't even form sentences like it is stunning it is some of the most beautiful music i've ever heard it is gorgeous and it is so it gives so much to the story it is so atmospheric and like hearing it done by a full orchestra i mean i said i'd never seen it before i actually saw a student production like a 10 years ago oh yeah that's not going to be a full orchestra it was not a full orchestra doing justice to the score absolutely not and oh my god it just and also seeing ruthie ann miles who's really having a career high right now and anna zelson who this was her new york debut play off of each other and both be so incredibly just pitch perfect in every way was a dream come true Ruthie Ann Miles' performance in Piazza broke me. I cried so much. I would be so surprised if we don't 
see this on Broadway. Like, I think that people are clamoring for it. And I think it's now that like Encores is sending every other production to Broadway. Like, I think that this really like deserves the world deserves to see this production done for Mm -hmm. so many great reasons. I just I have zero quibbles about it. It was perfect. It was absolutely perfect in every way. Like, I was in heaven. I loved that they didn't subtitle any of the Italian. Like, I think that it would have been very easy for them to do that, to surtitle it. And, like... Well, they ne- they never have. I know that they never have, but I could see... I could see, like, the argument for it, you know? And I'm glad that they sure. have kept it so that that is not a factor. Just, like, if that's just something I've been thinking about because of, like... I also, like, saw K-pop earlier this season... And I really loved, Mm -hmm. I just like, I love that we're allowing, and we have Here Lies Love. And I just think that like, that's something that we haven't talked a lot about, but like the idea of having non-English dialogue and songs on stage in like New York and in America and just kind of letting it be a language that you can still like communicate effectively dramatically, even though it's not English, like is something that I've been thinking a lot about. Yeah, for sure. Loved it. And yeah, it's funny because it's like I was just on the subreddit r slash Broadway and um, there's a thread that has like almost 200 comments that's just called shows where you love the score but hate the plot. And literally like the first thing I thought to myself upon seeing that title was light in the piazza. I don't hate the plot. plot. Like that's an overstatement. But like I think it was top of mind because I had just seen it Mm -hmm. and like multiple commenters included it. They were like, oh my God, Jesus Christ, light in the piazza. But it's so stunning, the score. We are Ruthie and Miles stands. We will follow Anna Zavelson for the rest of her career because my God. This was really fun. I really like that I I think that this is something we really want to continue for bonus episodes. Yeah, I feel like we'll probably do it like at least every three months or so like think at least like quarterly makes sense um so yeah hope everyone is having a great summer seeing lots of theater if there's theater happening by you hitting hit up your local summer stock theater yeah you know and if you love this episode if you love partial view podcast please share the podcast with a friend Tell people, tell your friends and family, tell your enemies. Yeah. Thanks so much for being a patron of ours. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at Partial View Pod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter. Follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D-L-E-Y. Till next time. Bye.